Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, the man dubbed the Minister for Everything on the art of a good campaign and New Zealand's path through a difficult economy. Then, how much influence do investment companies like BlackRock really have? So they're investing in things that our daily lives depend upon for the health of our daily existence. And one of National's most outspoken MPs faces a big challenge from the right. If you look at when you came into Parliament and then others who have been sort of promoted forward. Yeah, look, it, it always comes down to what leaders want, but it probably has had an impact. But, you know, I went into Parliament to be me. We'll have that story for you shortly. But first, Stephen Joyce was the National Party's campaign manager for no fewer than five elections. For four of those, National won more votes than any other party. Joyce earned a reputation as being adept as a minister at getting big changes through the machinery of government. Now, with two months until the 2023 general election, Stephen Joyce has published his memoir on the record. Kia ora, good morning. Morning, how are you, Jack? Very well, thanks. It's the first time you've seen the book. Which it is, is, yeah. Uh, it's first time I've seen an actual physical copy yeah, of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to dive into your own memories and, and uh, political history in a moment. Sure. But given tomorrow is two months until polling day, yeah. let's start with the current election. From your experience as National's campaign manager, what is your assessment of the campaigns as they stand? Well, I think it's, it's probably wider open than, it's, than it was for many, uh, probably for all of my five campaigns. I mean, the distinction here this time is that the two major parties uh, look like getting a smaller proportion of the vote than they have uh, in, in many elections, um, you know, as, 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 as two, mm. uh, which brings the smaller parties significantly into play. You've got ACT and Green uh, around that 10% mark which means whatever government you get after the election is going to be quite driven by the smaller partner. You've got old Winston, you know, um, on manoeuvres, as I say in the book, um, once again. Um, and he tends to, as, as you can see in the polls, he tends to do well when one of at least one of the uh, other parties is weak. So it's, it, I'd say it's fairly wide open, but I think on balance with the direction of travel, and, and people talk a lot about that right direction, wrong direction indicator that all the polls focus mm. on. But I do think that makes it an uphill battle for the incumbent to win. It's it's very uh, wrong direction at the moment. The public are looking for change. Mm. Um, and the question is, uh, you know, will they press the button? And, uh, and I think it's increasingly likely, not guaranteed by any manner of means, because there's a lot to happen between now and the election day, but increasingly likely that uh, they might press that button. If you look at the big donations that have come in so far, so sure. donations that are more than $20,000, mm. National Act and the Greens have all brought in more money than Labor. Yeah. How is that likely to affect things over the next two months? Not hugely, because ironically, money only um, it's enables campaigning uh, to some degree. It doesn't change the nature of campaigns, despite what some people think. Uh, you need to have funding to, to campaign. Uh, but you also have the government funding through TV, for TV ads and all mm. those sorts of things. Uh, and some ways these days, uh, you know, the ubiquity of social media means you can do a whole lot of stuff that uh, that is effectively free. Um, and so I don't think it'll have a massive impact, but it's probably a is a bit of a referendum on mm. the relative popularity of the parties with their with their bases. Um, and I think uh, it's. I think Labor with the sort of move from Jacinda Ardern to Chris Hipkins and the junking of policies and the new directions mm. and all this sort of stuff uh, has probably confused the Labor base um, and the Labor supporters. Mm. Uh, the Greens know where they want to be and they're, they're 
big supporters are right behind them. Uh, and uh, National Act uh, supporters want, obviously want change. You have the unique perspective from having been at the Cabinet table, having been one of John Key's most trusted ministers, but also having a career in media and in, <laughs> and in marketing. From the outside, what would you say are the biggest differences between John Key and Christopher Luxon? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Um, look, I think that it's, it's hard to play sort of spot the difference and spot the similarity. I mean, people often talk about Christopher Luxon, is he the next John Key or is he not? Um, and I, it, it's... It's, you know, it's fun to have that conversation, but actually it doesn't mean anything. And what do you say when people ask you that? I, exactly that. I said it's a bit, of, it's a bit irrelevant. Um, I think uh, Chris Luxon's his own person. I think uh, probably most importantly that if he gets the job, he'll be facing with entirely different challenges that mm. John Key had. Uh, every government's determined by events. The events that determine the next government uh, mm. haven't happened yet. So um, I think he's very capable, very organised, and probably uh, one similarity with John would be he tends to uh, lead a team but let the team do its job. And we, I was very privileged to be in a government, which isn't, isn't you know, necessarily common, where you know, you're trusted to mm. do a job and, sure, you've got to do it, but you don't get sort of micromanaged by, by the leader. Yeah. Um, and that has happened plenty of times. So your first experience as National Party's campaign manager was 2005, yes. which was arguably the most controversial of yes. the campaigns you <laughs> oversaw. So th there is one um, memory that stuck out for me from that campaign, and I think we've got some pictures of it here. The Iwi versus Kiwi billboards. Upon reflection, do you think those were good for New Zealand? Well, I actually, I don't... Look, I don't think they... On their, on their own re represent much, except they are just a, a depiction, an illustration of what was going on at the time. Mm. I don't think uh, racial divisiveness works for New Zealand. Do you think that was racially divisive? No, I think it reflected, and I don't know, there's plenty of people with different views, mm. uh, and many people took it a different way to what I took it when I saw it, which was looking at one as a subset of the whole rather than, rather than you know, you have one or the other. Um, so what do, what do you mean by that? Well, that, that Kiwis is everybody, and, and by incorporating the word iwi and the word kiwi, it, it, it was supposed to be a clever play on words, yeah, yeah, yeah. which sort of got lost a little bit in the debate. Um, but, um, but, but I think the bigger question is, why was 2005 like that? Mm. And I think, unfortunately, it's playing out a bit again this year. It's different, mm. and you know, there won't be any of those billboards and shore and all that sort of stuff. But... Uh, unfortunately, we've had two governments now who have probably got ahead of a significant proportion of the population in their approach to race relations. And we spent, you know, with the likes of Chris Finlayson, Bill English, Tariana Turia, um, Peter Sharples, uh, John Key, spent a lot of time mm. sort of managing New Zealand's uh, race relations into a much happier place. And unfortunately, I think that's going to be the lot of the next government as well, because we've had a very assertive Māori caucus in the Labour Party that wants, wants this stuff and that stuff and that stuff, mm. and they've got ahead of the country. And that happened in 05, and it's happening again now. In what ways have they got ahead of the country? Well, because um, it's, it's, it's a focus on identity politics, um, and, and I think you... I think, uh, and it's broader than just ethnic mm. issues. Uh, and I think the trouble with identity politics is that it is, always puts people on the outside base that they aren't that identity. Um, and um, and you know, people don't respond well to that. Mm. And uh, 
So I think you know we do need to get into a position, and this will be a challenge for the mm. next government, should one be elected, a new government, will be how do you draw everybody back together again and get mm. them rowing in the same walker? W would a referendum on the principles of Te Tiriti or Waitangi or the Treaty of Waitangi be good for New Zealand? I'm not sure about that. Um, but I'm also not going to do a big critique on on the various mm. parties' policies. Mm. But um, I think I think it's going to take a it's a it's a more you know, people people want to be feeling that they they're all in it together. And yes, mm. some people need you know, help, but it's generally not on it's not uh, it's it's not helpful to do it on on various aspects of their identity. It's better mm. to help people that need help. I suppose the danger is looking at something like the the iwi versus kiwi thing. Some people would say that that actually intensified. Divides, especially off the back of it was off the back of the Audio speech, of course. Well, it's a thing of its it was a thing of its time, mm. um, and you know we're nearly twenty years ago now. Mm. The Ariwa speech, of course, the, you know the big irony of that people sort of it was like a master masterful sort of strike. It, as I write in the book, uh, everybody was surprised about the reaction to that speech, mm. uh, including Don Brash, um, mm. and you know people say oh that was the turning point the master stroke or whatever you know, and you either agree with it or you disagree with it but actually it was just a speech mm. <laughs> and it, and and the republic reaction to it was what drove it infrastructure yep. is a massive challenge facing new zealand and in your book you you reflect on the rollout of ultra fast broadband which i think regardless of people's political stripes many people would consider it is one of if not the most successful rollout of a big infrastructure project in New Zealand's recent history, at the very least. What are the lessons that we should apply from the rollout of that project to other big infrastructure projects in New Zealand? Uh, well, it's 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 a danger to take a huge huge amount out of it because it it uh, it was a again a, a creature of its moment. Uh, but I think, firstly. Firstly, is, is try and draw in everybody that actually can make a contribution, um, and um, that's the private sector as well as the public sector. Um, that was a very much private mm. sector-driven project. It mm. was it was controlled and funded in part by the public sector, but it was the execution of it was very much um, uh, you know the chorus and all that sort of thing was was that actually did it uh, were private sector players. The contrast with Australia, I think, is is very relevant. Australia, they tried to uh, they tried to bully Telstra into selling the business, and eventually they did, but for a ridiculous price. Mm. And they nationalised it effectively, uh, the broadband rollout, and it was rubbish after that. Mm. Uh, and I, I think it's trying to find the the shortest path to success, keeping your and keeping clarity about what success looks mm. like, because. The thing about politics is everybody's got a view, right? And it's mm. always a different view. So you have to sort of get, okay, what were we thinking at the start? Why do we come to do this? And no, yes, it may be important to have international pipelines or it may be important to have backhaul, but actually the goal here is this mm. and this is what we need to do. So keep coming back to it and you know, hire really good people and mm. let them do their jobs. But, but, but as a minister, um, are, are there lessons that we can take for that for other projects? For example, and I should say, I know you are not a supporter of light rail, <laughs> <Yeah>. for example. <laughs> well, apparently. But, but just let's just let's just <laughs> yeah, for, for yeah. a thought experiment for a moment. Yeah. If you were the minister in charge of delivering light rail, what would you have done differently to further progress that project in the last six years? Oh, um, well, I think I think you have to tailor it to what it is that you're trying to do, which comes back to that point, right? Mm. What's the what are you actually trying to achieve? Um, and if it is access 
to you know, those inner western suburbs of Auckland from the CBD. Well, let's focus on that. Let's not try and turn it into the airport thing or back from the airport thing or, or whatever. You know, it's, it's, it's morphed around a lot. Mm. Uh, secondly, what are you actually trying to achieve? What, what, what are you, uh, and is this the best way of doing it? Um, and I think that's, the, that's a question, but let's assume then to your point that it was. Then you really have to say, well, what's the mechanism by which we're going to achieve it? And yeah, it was just all a bit random. I don't know whether you remember the sort of the idea that the Superfund would do it. Um, mm. And they didn't trust NZTA, uh, uh, Waka Katahi, to do it. They, they, had, they allowed this parallel process. Imagine that. So you're, you're there, you're the, the agency charged with leading a procurement for it. And meanwhile, um, another arm of government is mm. in talking to a different set of ministers saying, hey, we'll run it. Mm. And the minister's saying, yeah, that could be a good idea. And mm. you're like, what, what am I doing yeah. here? Um, and so the whole thing, just, there was just no, there was no shape to it. And so if you, if, if you were going to do it, then let's, for goodness sake, agree what it's trying to achieve, mm. set some parameters around it, and then, then hire some good people and let them get on with it. Make it contestable, absolutely. Mm. It's got to be contestable. But, that, but you can't have a contestable process of, if a construction company doesn't even know whether to go to the super fund or to, or to, or to mm. Waka Katahi to have the conversation. That's nuts. You love roads um, in the right place. They tend to work <laughs> as a general rule. Um, you, you were uh, behind the roads of national significance and you were involved in the early stages of Transmission Gully. Yes. Of course, that had a benefit cost ratio of 0.6 at its original On cost. On its own, of, yeah. Yeah, which then blew out. Um, at the costing blew out. It went over time. Well, ironically, the costing, the costing uh, that we had for it was always expected to be around 1.1, 1.2 billion. It mm. came back with the quotes um, and the process that, that, that went through and came to less than less than a billion, I think, was the, was the agreed price, which then, as you say, blew out. Um, the review from the Infrastructure Commission was pretty scathing yeah. uh, when it was released in 2021. But, but when you look at the road as it stands mm. now yep. and you reflect on the whole process, the ups and downs, yeah. well, do you think it represents good value? Y yes, I do. Yeah. I, and, and I think... It is, it is huge value both for the transport benefits, the safety benefits, but the bit that we don't like to talk about, which is mm. also the Wellington resilience bit. Uh, and um, you know, we all hope that we don't get the big earthquake that everybody tells us we're going to get in Wellington. But that was one of the things that swung it for me. And I remember uh, the head of DPMZ at the time, uh, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet Martin Weavers, saying he supported this mm. to me. Uh, not because of all the other stuff, but because his obsession was what happens to Wellington if there's a big quake. And if you look at that, that sort of the two other exits out of Wellington, uh, one is along the bottom of the cliff there at Pukerua Bay, and the other one's you know over the Rumataka Hills. Yeah. Um, and both he's, fairly precarious. Well, both would be gone. Yeah, They would both be gone. In fact, the, the general civil defence planning for the city is that it's cut off for weeks mm. if something like that happens. So he thought... Uh, for the, so for, I think that alone is, is, is one reason to do it. But um, it's, it's hugely important. And we have, you know, I write in the book about how we're, we're sort of courageous to build the capital city on the yeah. sort of outcrop of rock at the bottom of an island, but we've done it. And, and it needs to be connected to the rest yeah. of the country. Politics is all about timing. And, and your time as Prime Minister never came. How, how do you feel about that? Relaxed. Would I you never have really liked set to be out Prime to be, Minister? 
No, I mean, look, it's, I used to say to John, you've got to sit and listen to a lot of things. I mean, prime ministers <laughs> go around <laughs> sitting and listening and opening stuff and uh, way more than ministers do. Yeah. Uh, and I thought it was quite good that he did all that. And, yeah. and there were one or two others of us that got to do, you know, roll our sleeves up and get stuff done. Yeah. Um, so was that the benefit of not standing in a lecturist as well? Uh, well, I, I, I say in the book, I, I was asked to stand at mm. North Shore and, and I would have quite liked it. But look, I was in a very privileged position. Mm. I was brought in, asked to do a job. Uh, and I was there in Parliament for nine and a half years. I've mm. met MPs who have been in Parliament for 12 or 15 years and never been a minister. Mm. So um, it was a very privileged position mm. to be in. And I hope I, I did it. I did it well. And I hope I you know, gave the public enough of a return from that. I've got to give you a hard time about one thing. Sure. Reporting from RNZ shows that over the last three years, you've received close to a million dollars in consulting fees from Massey University. At the uh, same not Massey University. Actually. Oh, sorry, uh, from universities. At the same time, you've publicly criticised the Labor government for not giving mm. universities enough money. Is that an ethical position to hold while it's Yeah, I think so. I, I know the university sector very well. Um, in terms of the work I did, uh, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the university can establish the value that I gave them and they're very, very positive about that. Um, and it, it was a number of projects that I executed for them. And um, that particular university is, I think, in a very strong position at the moment relative to the others. Mm. None of them are in a brilliant position. Um, I do think uh, that the government ignored what was coming for the university sector for some time um, in terms of the, the drop of the pipeline of international mm. students and then the drop in the domestic students and now they're playing catch up. And as a result, the university sector has been damaged. I took my position as, as, as somebody who's helped them stay afloat um, with a range of projects as I think they're, they're, the two can work together. Mm. There is an infamous moment that many of our viewers, I'm sure, will remember. <laughs> and I'm sure you're never allowed to, to <laughs> forget. At Waitangi, a protester threw yes. a certain projectile in your direction. That's Fair great. to say that um, you took the whole thing on the chin <laughs> Literally. in every sense. Yeah. Does any part of you resent Dildo Gate? No. And there's no point because it happened. Um, I, I do find it amusing when people on social media sort of like throw it at me as if, as if it's a, a blight on my copybook. And I was like, well, I don't think I threw it. Mm. Um, you know, I happened to be the politician standing there. You know, it was meant for John Key, of course. That was. Mm. That was the plan. So I've, I've had him on over the years that I uh, took one for the team, so to speak. Um, but uh, look, at it, it's just something that happened. And you know, and the, some of the reaction to it was very funny. I mean, mm. I think the John Oliver stuff was, you know, I, was, was, was priceless, really. Mm. <laughs> and look, you just, you know, stuff happens. I mean, nobody got hurt. Mm. Um, should Christopher Luxon rule out working with Winston Peters? Um, that's for him to suss out. Um, and uh, so I don't think it would be any helpful you for me. Do, in the book you talk quite, uh, it's very interesting that the, the details that you share around the coalition negotiations yep. in 2017, which you were... What was the impression you got from those? Uh, the impression that I got was that you never felt like Winston Peters gave National a chance. And well, that, I, and I, I actually was more positive than that, but there were certainly some that didn't think, you know, that thought it was all for show, really. Um, look, I think the thing is that he, he's out for number one, and that's fine. Um, but you've got to take a grain of salt. Mm. Anything he says ahead of an election compared to afterwards, and if people want to vote for him after that, well, then that's fine. But I think 2017 showed that mm. that uh, 
I think previously he'd always said, yeah, he'd prefer to go with the largest part, a party. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a healthier position to take. Um, and look, I, I, you know, 2017 happened mm. um, and uh, they went with the second largest party, which was the first time, I think, since 1911. And you can do that because it's in mm. the rules. That's mm. doable. I wouldn't like to see it happen too many times, though, because then the whole political system comes into question again. Because mm. peop- ultimately, political systems are driven by the people that you know, vote. Mm. And if they think that their, that their uh, preferences are being frustrated, then, as I say, I don't think that came out of 17. But if it happened again mm. um, quite soon after, then I think it would be... It, you know, people would start to be questioning the, the system again. What was the upside to John Key's decision to rule out working with Winston Peters? Well, they, we did that a couple of times. Mm. Uh, and, and the upside was, in those instances, was making it clear that, um, you know, what the shape of a new government might look like. Mm. We were in a stronger position, though, to be fair. Um, and... Uh, uh, in, in both cases, and so uh, I, I, you know, it's 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 a different decision this time mm. um, for for the for the current team. But yeah, you know, personally, um, you know, Winston is a likable rogue, but I wouldn't like to back any of you know, my future in any sense on on Winston's say so. I just wouldn't do it. <laughs> would would a national act, New Zealand first government, theoretically, would that survive? Oh, I'm sure it would. Would it be Would it be strong government? Mm, maybe, maybe not. Um, but uh, look, people have a funny way, and and I think there's a limit to how much you can use history to guide the future. Some of it is important, but uh, ultimately, whatever happens after the election will happen. Mm. There will be a government. It will run with the greatest respect to the current one. Mm. Um, they haven't set the bar very high, um, and. Um, so, so we'll just have to see what happens. Thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. That is Stephen Joyce. His book is on the record. It's a great read and it is published this week. Up next, the government signed a deal with one of the world's biggest investment funds to invest in renewable energy. But one expert warns the deal deserves close scrutiny. I am absolutely stoked. This is a game changer. It's a no-brainer. Today is a watershed moment in our transition to 100% renewable electricity generation. That was Prime Minister Chris Hipkins announcing the new $2 billion renewable energy deal with US investment giant BlackRock. But economist Brett Christophers is wary of the influence held by companies such as BlackRock. He's a professor at Sweden's Uppsala University and the author of Our Lives and Their Portfolios, Why Asset Managers Own the World, which examines companies like BlackRock into our great fortune. Brett just happens to be in Aotearoa, New Zealand this week. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning. What do you make of the deal? Um, I read the deal as very much a sign of the times. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, governments around the world, not just in New Zealand, have identified a whole series of investment um, demands Mm. relating particularly to infrastructure. Uh, And I know you were just talking about infrastructure just now, Um, not least relating to climate infrastructure, infrastructure of climate mitigation and adaptation. Um, And as well as recognizing a huge demand for investment, I think the second important part is that governments have increasingly 
um, accepted or taken the view that governments themselves shouldn't be undertaking that investment. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be principally or even at all public money. Mm. So they're looking to the private sector to undertake most of that investment. Uh, and then if you look at the private sector and you look at well, where is their surplus capital sitting mm. available to be invested in that type of infrastructure, well, the answer these days is pretty much asset management companies like BlackRock. So they have about $100 trillion of capital under management. They manage capital for entities like pension schemes and insurance companies and sovereign wealth funds, as well as individuals like you and I. Um, and so if you're looking to the private sector to carry out investment these days, then you're looking principally to asset managers. So this, this deal is absolutely a sign of wider times, I would say. What does BlackRock get out of it? I mean, money, maybe, but yep. what yep. else? Um, BlackRock, like in all of its investments, is looking to do two things. It's looking to make money, but it's also looking for good public relations and investment in green energy, notwithstanding some pushback in the States mm. where a lot of people have accused BlackRock in its, in its head, Larry Fink, of kind of being woke for investing in things like renewables. But, but you know, for the most part, people want to see them carrying out ethical investment mm. uh, in, of one form or another. And so they get good PR and obviously they'll be looking to make money. They're not going to come here. They're not a charity. They're not coming here and, you know, here's the money, do with it what you will. Mm. And I think that's, that's kind of my main view, I would say, of the deal is that we don't have any detail, but one would imagine that behind the scenes, there's been a lot of discussion where BlackRock will have said, well, you know, we'll do the fund, but we want to be pretty certain we're going to make money out of it. And this is the thing I would say is that renewables investment everywhere in the world is a risky business. And BlackRock, like other leading private sector investors mm. in renewables, does not invest in renewables unless it has seen that a significant amount of that risk has been absorbed by other actors. And so they, they will not have said, we're gonna give you this money without the government giving some sort of form of assurance that, they'll, that there'll be a scheme in place whereby some of that risk will be removed. Right, see that's very interesting. The day after the announcement, the government released a consultation document with a roadmap for energy transition in yep. New Zealand. Is that enough of a carrot? Is that enough of the assurance that BlackRock will be requiring, do you think, or? Um, well, look, I mean, I, I think what will happen, I mean, the thing is, the money's not there yet. No. That's the important thing to understand is, I mean, f just for your viewers of the basic kind of background of how that industry works, a, 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 an asset management firm like BlackRock will say, we're gonna establish an investment fund. Mm. In this case, it's, this case it's to invest in clean energy infrastructure of one form or another, specifically in New Zealand, but it could be you know, transportation infrastructure in Southeast Asia or housing in America, whatever else. And then they go along to their investors, the pension funds, the sovereign wealth funds, say, look, we've got this investment fund we're setting up. This is what we're gonna do with it. We think it's gonna be able to generate, if you put money into it, we think it will help generate you returns of 10, 12% per annum, whatever mm. it might be. These are the fees we're gonna charge you for putting money into that fund. We think you, it will be good for you to give us $100 million to put into that fund. 10 years time, we'll return that to money, money to you with a healthy profit. Now, they've said they'll establish the fund, but they have yet to go on the road, so to speak, to raise that capital. Mm. And so while they're doing that, there'll be ongoing discussions going on with the New Zealand government about um, you know, how renewable energy investment is regulated and managed in New Zealand. And historically, I mean, I think this is one of the really interesting things about New Zealand. Historically, there has been less um, 
so to speak, government support for renewables mm. in New Zealand and elsewhere in the world. The main way in which it's uh, quote unquote subsidised at the moment, as I understand it, is through the emissions trading scheme, which basically makes fossil fuel fired power more expensive yeah. and therefore in relative terms makes renewables less expensive. But mm. My understanding is that the government has, has come to a view with the industry that other mechanisms of support are going to be required going forward. Right, right. If money makes the world go round and companies like BlackRock have traditionally had massive, massive investments in fossil fuels, is it not a good thing that the money is chasing returns in renewables? Yep. I mean, I, I'd, yeah, I'd say two, three things in answer to that. So the first is, absolutely, it's better that um, if BlackRock is going to invest in the energy sector, mm. that that is in renewables than in fossil fuels, 100%. Mm. But let's be honest, I mean, this is another really important thing to understand, is that the part of BlackRock that invests in specific infrastructure projects that will be doing this is an entirely different part of BlackRock um, than the part that holds shares in BP and Shell and right. Chevron and Exxon. Totally different types of funds, different fund managers, different business yeah. operating a completely different uh, incentive mechanism. That's the one thing. Right. Second thing, if, if the difference, if the if the choice is between BlackRock investing in renewables in, in New Zealand and nobody investing in renewables in New Zealand, it's far better that BlackRock does it. Like, it's better that the yeah. investment occurs. You know, if, if someone was to ask me, would you prefer um, renewables investment occurs in, in New Zealand, BlackRock makes a, a filthy profit, then the investment doesn't occur at all. I'll mm. take the first choice every time. Third thing to say, however, is that BlackRock is not the only potential investor in renewable en energy in New Zealand. And BlackRock, uh, wherever it operates in the world, like other major mm. asset management institutions, tends to come out on top when it does these types of arrangements. Because mm. BlackRock is a savvy negotiator and governments are bending over backwards to attract that type of capital and giving them good deals. And my position will be, well, is BlackRock the only alternative? And wouldn't it potentially be better if, for example, the public sector borrowed the money mm. and undertook that investment itself. More broadly, what is your concern with these investment funds? So um, my main concern with these funds, which is uh, which I kind of elaborate at length in the book, is that I th I, my view, based on the researches I've done, is that they have a particular set of incentives that makes them inappropriate owners of um, assets, of physical assets, on which ordinary people rely to a significant extent in their daily lives. So the ones I talk about in the book are principally housing, mm. on the one hand, um, and that can include not just everyday apartment blocks or, or single-family housing, but student accommodation, care homes, for mm. example, they invest a lot in. Um, so housing on the, one, on the one hand, and then critical infrastructures on the other hand that deliver services like water and, and water and wastewater mm. treatment um, transportation infrastructures that you were talking about earlier of being a big area investment um, telecommunications infrastructure and then energy infrastructures now when they invest in these infrastructures they typically do so um, for a limited time period mm. because their business model is not 
for the most part, buying and holding for the long term, despite some kind of very nice, fluffy rhetoric about being long-term stewards and so on. For the most part, they buy and sell within a few years because mm. that's how they make their money. And actually, I noticed, in, particularly in relation to this deal, that BlackRock has actually said it doesn't expect to own these infrastructures for the long term. It expects to own them for a relatively short period of time, which begs the question of why they would own them in the first place. Mm. Um, and if your incentive is to own uh, infrastructures and housing with a view to selling them and making a profit, you, you, have a, you have two or three specific incentives that I think make them inappropriate. Firstly, your main goal is to increase the income you extract from those assets right. as quickly as possible right. to make them more attractive to other potential buyers, which means putting up rents, putting up water rates sure. and so on. But the other thing is, if you know that you're not going to be owning that infrastructure in 10 years' time, let alone in 20 or 30 mm. years' time, you are, by your very nature, disincentivized to carry out long-term capital expenditure, long-term capital investment. That will, for example, keep that infrastructure in good shape for 20 or 30 years' time. Mm. You're much more likely to be inclined to carry out kind of like Band-Aid, sticking plaster-type solutions, which keep those infrastructures in okay nick mm. for the next few years but then basically lumber the next owner with those problems and if you look at the many of uh, many viewers will have heard about the lamentable state of uk water and wastewater infrastructures yeah. which have been significantly owned by asset management institutions in recent times including macquarie from australia owned thames water for a long period of time and that's just a, a, a case study in underinvestment in the infrastructure right alongside massive extraction through dividends and so on and so forth of income. But, but at the same time, over the period through which asset managers have increased their influence in the global economy, we as consumers have been able to access these funds in a way that we weren't previously able to do. And I right. think of you know th things like share trading yep. apps, and, and there's been a democratisation of sorts when it comes to okay. investments in these kinds of assets. Yep. So, so if the alternative is to have nationalised assets when it comes to these infrastructure kind of things, don't we, the people, still own them? Yes and no. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. So one of my favourite lines from uh, the other blacks, so not Black Rock, Black Stone, which, again, people often get confused <laughs> between their two. They used to be part of the same company, yeah. but they're not anymore. It'd be nice to see a bit of range in the spectrum yeah, there. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Um, so one of my favourite lines that they reproduce in their annual report mm. every year is they say, uh, and, and like BlackRock, they're an asset management firm that establishes investment funds uh, for, for their clients. Mm. And they say every year, to the extent that our, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's not the exact same words, but to the extent that our investment funds perform well, we are securing a, uh, a safe and secure future for ordinary workers like nurses and firefighters and teachers because it's their money ultimately mm. that we're investing and therefore if the funds perform very, very well, they're the people that's benefiting. Now, that is a very misleading discourse, but it's a very powerful mm. discourse because, because people think along precisely the lines that you were just articulating there. Mm. And, and, I, and, and it's misleading for a couple of reasons. So the, the first of the, well, for three reasons, I, I, I keep coming out to three, the, the first of those is like, well, yes, but if, you're, if those funds are making profits for ordinary retirement mm. savers by investing money in a fund that is itself making money by ratcheting up rents on other workers or even potentially the same workers, mm. 
then I'm not particularly sure that's a, that's a good thing. I'm not sure I would want my pension to be boosted uh, by essentially kind of rent gouging other, other people. So that's one thing. Second thing is increasingly the money that the funds like BlackRock and Blackstone establish is not the money of ordinary retirement savers. Increasingly, it is the money of uh, institutions like huge sovereign wealth funds from the Middle East. So, for example, mm. Blackstone's biggest infrastructure fund, which has about, uh, I think, just over $20 billion mm. US dollars invested in it, half of the capital in that fund is the fund of one sovereign wealth fund, which is the... Uh, uh, PIF, the uh, Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, yeah. where there's all sorts of questions about human rights and so on. So if that fund makes money, well, they're doing it, they're making yeah. the money mainly for Saudi Arabian government. So that's the second thing. Third thing is, yes, some of the rest of the money is retirement savings, but like all forms of wealth, retirement savings wealth, so pension wealth, is unbelievably unequally distributed right. in society. I think if you look at the US, something like the 50 percent of all retirement savings are held by i don't know the top two percent of yeah, the, the highest income in this. yeah okay. yeah so yes if blackstone or blackrock's funds yeah. perform well some of the money that is the, the the profit that is generated by that fund goes to ordinary workers but it's a tiny right. tiny sliver yeah yeah and thank you so much for your time we really appreciate it it's great to have you in new zealand this week it's great very to timely. be here yeah thank Professor you very much christopher's if you want to contact the Q&A team, please coordinate my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. Up next, who's going to win Tamaki? Where Nationals incumbent MPs Simon O'Connor and Acts Brooke Van Velden are locked in a tight contest ahead of October's election. Hoki mai we welcome back to Q&A. Polls consistently suggest ACT is on track to secure the strongest party vote result in its history. But the party is also putting significant resource into a campaign for a second electorate seat. The Tāmaki electorate borders Epsom, which is already held by ACT leader David Seymour. And although the electorate has been solidly blue since, get this, 1957, as Fena Owen reports, this year Tāmaki is being keenly contested. If ever there was a true blue electorate, it's Tamaki. It's been a national seat for 63 years straight. In its seaside suburbs, we meet up with the member for Tamaki, Simon O'Connor. This is your office. This is my office. Right, this is so St. Helier's, isn't it? I like no, subtle. I like subtle. I like subtle. This is, it, is it accessible though, you know, for people? People know it's here. People know that I do all my own emails, all my social media, it's me. And he's been representing Tamaki since he won the seat in 2011. But for years, Tamaki was synonymous with one man, <laughs> Robert Muldoon. I keep a photo of uh, Rob in my office, not for any eulogising, but Rob is Tamaki. Um, he is Tamaki. Morning. The Tamaki electorate is more than the upmarket suburbs of St Helier's and Mission Bay. It takes in new housing areas like Stonefields, the Glen Innes area, Glendowie and Meadowbank. Your elections have been pretty straightforward since 2011, but this one, 
poses a new challenge for you with ACT? Yeah, ACT has certainly thrown a lot of time and money um, into it, so I'm never complacent. Uh, but you know, very proud of what myself and um, National have done here. Yeah. So we've got a really good record to, to stand on. So actually looking forward to the campaign. On a St Helier's street corner, Act's Tamaki candidate Brooke Van Valden beams from the Act Party House, the campaign HQ. But she's out door knocking around the electorate. Hi, I'm Brooke Van Valden. I'm the Act Party deputy leader. Next morning, we tag along to her street corner meetings. We're starting the morning in Remuera, then moving through Meadowbank and then to St John's. All right, let's go out and meet some more people. A small group of local residents listen to a presentation, then fire questions. Why did you come along today to listen to Brooke? Um, mainly because my concern for law and order, really, but Brooke uh, very um, deftly answered a lot of the questions that I had. Hip, hip. Brooke Van Valden came into Parliament in 2020. After graduating in economics and international trade, she worked for lobbyist Matthew Hooten and then as a staffer in David Seymour's office. Why did you decide to stand in Tamaki? Well, I decided to stand in Tamaki because so many people over the last two and a half years have asked me to do it. So what will you do differently from National if you get this seat? So what I'll do is I promise to be a good, hard-working local representative who works for all people of the electorate in the same way that David Seymour does in Epsom. You know, he's a very hard-working local MP. I think that's what people deserve in Tamaki as well. Right where I'm standing is the Tamaki electorate, but just metres away across the road is the Epsom electorate, a seat held by the ACT leader David Seymour since 2005. And you can see what's going on here expansion. What he'd like to see is an ACT Party block with Epsom and Tamaki. But that's all up to the people of Tamaki. So what do you think you'll do this election? <laughs> I probably won't decide till the day, but uh, um, ACT's looking pretty good, I've got to say. Oh, yeah. you know of Brooke? Yes, yes, yeah, I've seen her marketing, looks good. I'll probably, I'm more a Simon, Simon voter here and national. Oh, they're completely invisible. I have no idea what they stand for in this electorate. Zero. Nothing. Who's they? Who? Act. 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 I have zero idea what they stand for here. Well, I think Simon's got quite a bit of support. Brooke Van Valden, you think she's got yeah. a good chance here? Yeah, because I particularly don't like Simon and what he stands for. National's going to win the government. Simon O'Connor, who trained as a priest and completed postgrad degrees in politics and philosophy, is known to be one of the more socially conservative politicians in Parliament, opposing abortion reform and the end-of-life choice bill. There are a lot of people who probably disagree with my views on different topics. Doesn't matter if it's China to ethical issues, but they respect that I'm not afraid to speak up. Do you think being outspoken has held you back career-wise? Because if you look at when you came into Parliament and then others who have been sort of promoted forward. Yeah, look, it always comes down to what leaders want, but it probably has had an impact. But, you know, I went into Parliament to be me. Um, I'm there to represent this electorate. Vast majority, even when it But the ACT candidate who worked on the end-of-life choice bill is positioning herself as a Liberal voice for Tamaki voters. I want Conservative and socially Liberal people throughout Tamaki to feel like they have a representative who believes that they should have choice over how they live their lives. The ACT Party's own internal polling puts National and ACT neck and neck. Currently he's on 36%, I'm on 34%. And Labour on 8%. Oh, Labour.
over in Glen Innes, Tamaki's Labour candidate Fesayutu Solomone, 59 on Labour's list, shares a prediction. But hey, who knows, you know, they might eventually split the vote here in our Tamaki electorate and Labour could potentially uh, come through the middle. Unlikely, Simon says. Over in St Heliers, the politician is busy admiring fur babies. So what have you done for Tamaki? Where do you really start? If you want to, it's literally the thousands of locals who have come in who need help from everything from immigration to citizenship to they need a new stove at their housing New Zealand property. So if ACT does well in this election, how many places in Cabinet are you after? Well, that's, that's a question for post-election, really. Um, look, I, I think we want to work tightly with National. I've been in Parliament now for two and a half years. Waiting at the next street corner, voters with burning questions about co-governance, racial equality and te reo. I think firstly we've got to go back to having English first and then have Māori second. Yeah, and not combined. Yeah. Yeah. The ACT deputy leader has two months of street corner meetings ahead of her, a campaign device that worked well for Epsom's David Seymour. Oh, sorry. Sorry. And as Simon O'Connor's long-time electorate neighbour, David Seymour is now looking over the fence. Uh, look, uh, David and I have uh, locked horns on a number of issues uh, over the years. I'm sure he'd love to see uh, one of his uh, opponents pushed out. Um, I think he's going to get an unfortunate surprise on October 14. As I keep saying, I mean, this is my community. I've worked it hard because I love this community. Fina Owen reporting there from the Tamaki electorate. After the break, the Green Party wants to turn more households onto solar and they want to help landlords to make the switch. Tina Koto, welcome back. The Green Party wants to get more Kiwi households making the clean energy transition. It's confirmed a policy which will mean landlords can, can claim deductions for things like installing solar panels and EV charges and has set an explicit target for 30,000 Kainga order homes to go solar in the next three years. Green Party co-leader James Shaw is with us this morning. Kia ora, thanks for being with us. Let's start with the new settings for landlords. What specifically will be a deductible expense? Well, uh, you named it. It's things like uh, solar panels, um, batteries, installing EV chargers, but also swapping out gas appliances for electric appliances, uh, because ultimately the cost of fossil fuels is going up uh, and uh, rooftop solar um, is really cheap. Uh, and we want to make sure that tenants are able to share in the benefits, not just of renewable power, but also lower household bills. Will it extend to double glazing windows? No. So at the moment, uh, you know, it, the idea is that it has to go above and beyond what's in the rental warrant of fitness because that's a regulated standard. So there is a minimum uh, which we're saying houses need to meet in order to be, uh, you know, in order to in order to get that warrant of fitness to be on the rental market. But uh, even after you've done those things, tenants will still be paying higher bills than they need to. Mm. Um, and if we can swap out their gas appliances for electric and put solar on the roof, then that means that the benefit gets passed through to the tenants who have to pay those power bills. So there is a cap uh, when it comes to those deductible expenses of $18,000. It still requires capital on behalf of the landlord, though. So how big do you anticipate the uptake would be if this policy comes into fruition? Well, we've looked at comparison countries around the world uh, and, you know, there are 
I mean, different economies obviously have different solutions, but the proposal that we've got on the table is not dissimilar to what they're doing in Canada, um, and they've got uh, you know pretty good uptake there. Australia's got 30% solarisation across all of their households right now. We're sitting at 2%. And although it's early days in the United States, they've just brought in the Inflation Reduction Act and it looks like things are moving very, very quickly there. So I think solving that problem that we have at the moment where the landlord has no incentive at all to install those retrofits to those houses because they don't pay the power bill, bringing those interests together I think is uh, ultimately a win-win. In 2020, for the tenant. In 2020 you, uh, you, you had a policy where, whereby you'd offer a 50% grant for solar installations in homes, including rental homes. Will you offer the same thing in this election? What we're saying is that the um, grants, um, sorry, the, the uh, amount that a landlord will be able to claim back will be about $18,000 per house. Mm. Every house is different, so we're not prescribing you know, solar panels particularly. Uh, there might be other things that would make more sense in each household. Um, but ultimately, you know, uh, what we've said is uh, it costs about $17,000 or so, $17,500 mm. or so, to install both solar plus battery. Um, and uh, you know, then, like I said, you've got the variable cost depending on what the gas appliances are in the house. So, so it, it will vary from property to property. Yeah, sorry, just to be totally clear, though, this, this policy that you are releasing today is for deductible expenses, but I wondered, as with 2020, will there be any opportunity for homeowners and indeed landlords to access grants when it comes to the installation of solar? Well, the whole policy is going to be released uh, at 11, so I can't reveal everything to you. Um, but what we're, uh, what, we're, what, you know, what we're saying here is that you know, there is a, p a part of this which is designed specifically at ensuring that tenants mm. are able to share in the benefits of renewable power and the lower bills that go with that. I mean, that goes beyond uh, what we've already proposed around um, upgrading the healthy home standards and turning that into a rental warrant of fitness. Um, and like I said it, uh, earlier, it goes hand in hand mm. with uh, solarising the uh, Kainga houses as well. Yeah, talk to us about that. What, what do you want to achieve with the Kainga housing? Well, the government owns uh, just under 70,000 homes through Kainga Ora. Um, ultimately, one day we would like to see all of those with rooftop solar as well, um, because if you can book rooftop solar and have all the devices in the house running on electricity from the rooftop, that should save about $700 a year in reduced power for the tenants in those homes. So again, we want to make sure that the tenants in Kainga Ora uh, homes also uh, share in the benefits of reduced power bills and cleaner energy at the same time. When you reflect on the campaign so far, it's interesting to note that over the last couple of weeks, some of the promises that have come from both the government, which is of course the Labour government at the moment, and uh, the National Party opposition, we've seen some big promises when it comes to roads. Do you sense that the role climate is playing in this election campaign is meaningfully different to previous campaigns? Well, what I'm noticing is, you know, the reaction to those announcements uh, has actually been pretty negative from the population at large. I think, you know, especially in Auckland where people are suffering from congestion and the uh, impact on productivity from having people stuck in traffic for an hour and a half to two hours every day is really uh, making an impact. People actually realise and want 
ways of getting around that don't lock them into high car dependency because that ultimately is bad for everybody. Uh, and so, you know, every time, you know, you can shift people onto uh, rail or onto, you know, um, you know, bicycles and mm. so on and so forth, active modes of transport, what that does, it frees up congestion. And, you know, as I've said, I, th I think that the proposal to put six more lanes of traffic in and out of Auckland is not going to solve its congestion problem. It's going to increase the congestion problem. It's a big day for policy. You are releasing your full policy at 11 o'clock this morning. Of course, we're expecting a policy announcement from the Labour Party, widely reported to be their tax policy, which, of course, reporting suggests is uh, to be the scrapping of GST on fresh fruit and vegetables. Just while we've got you, what is your assessment of that theoretical policy and what does it say about Labour's campaign? <laughs> Well, like I said, it feels like we've been shadowboxing a wee bit about that because, you know, they haven't actually made a specific announcement. But what the Greens have been very clear about during the course of this election campaign is that we should focus on making sure that people have enough to live on. Uh, and that ultimately is a function of the incomes that they earn. And so our income guarantee... Uh, paid for through a wealth tax is our solution and that would enable people not just to buy fresh fruit and groceries but actually all of the essentials mm -hmm. uh, you know in, in terms of their daily and uh, daily bills all right thank you very much for your time that is green party co-leader james shaw stay with us q a is back after the break Just before we go this morning, as mentioned, Labor is expected to announce their long-awaited tax policy today. Opposition MPs say the policy will include cutting GST from fresh fruit and vegetables. Earlier this year, Finance Minister Grant Robertson described such a policy as a, quote, boondoggle. But here's what he told us on Q&A last week. Why is removing GST on food a boondoggle? <laughs> Look, um... I've made those comments around that in the past, and you can look around the world and see some issues where those sorts of schemes have been put in place. Equally, you can see that many countries in the world have those schemes, and so, you know, mm. boondoggles can be worked through. <laughs> boondoggles can be worked through. We will have coverage of that policy announcement when things are confirmed on onenews.co.nz and, of course, on One News at 6 tonight. For now, though, kua mutu. That is Q&A from the Q&A team. Thanks for watching. Nā mihi ki a koutou i Thanks for your feedback. Hey Tera Wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand on air.